Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. Subscribe to SubChina's daily, newly designed China Access Newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at subchina.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to China's travails as it wrestles with a surging wave of COVID-19. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This week on Seneca, we continue to examine the impact of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, the impact on the geostrategic landscape as viewed from Beijing, of course, and Today, though, we're going to be looking at one of the most significant pieces of that landscape, which is India. If there's another major power that is as conflicted as China is over the Russian invasion, then it's probably India. Like Beijing, New Delhi has tried to have it both ways, but the similarities, as Beijing may have found out the hard way, don't go much further than that. If there's strategic empathy between New Delhi and Moscow, and there's strategic empathy between Beijing and Moscow, the simplistic view might be that by some commutative property, there should be the same between New Delhi and Beijing, but it is not at all that simple, especially given India's deepening security relationship with the United States and, of course, the recency of the brutal clashes in the Galwan Valley between Chinese and Indian troops in the disputed border area of Ladakh. Here to talk about the view from India, India's complicated relations with Russia, its rivalry with China, and its growing ties with the U.S., are two deeply knowledgeable individuals who both work on China-Indian relations. Joining me from Washington, D.C. is Manjari Chatterjee Miller, Senior Fellow for India, Pakistan, and South Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations, and Associate Professor of Political Science at Boston University, from which she's currently on leave. She's also the author of Why Nations Rise, Narratives and the Path to Great Power, which looks at rising powers historically to understand what sets China and India apart. Madhuri, I just picked up the book and I'm really looking forward to reading it. But meanwhile, welcome to Seneca. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. 
Also joining me is Manoj Kewal Romani, chairperson of the Indo-Pacific Research Program and a China Studies Fellow at the Takshashila Institution, a leading Indian public policy education center. He puts out an amazingly good newsletter on China-India relations called Eye on China that I hope you'll subscribe to. And Manoj, I will ask you to plug that at the end of the show. Manoj, welcome to Seneca. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kaiser. Thank you so much for having me. Longtime fan. Uh, great to be here. I am delighted to have you. Well, I should add that Manoj is also a non-resident senior associate of the Freeman Chair at CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And it was actually through that chair, Jude Blanchett, through his good offices that I was introduced both to Manjuri and Manoj, although I have been following their work for some time. So thanks, Jude. Listeners to this show have probably followed at least the rough contours of India's reactions to the Russia invasion of Ukraine. And they're probably aware of Chinese overtures to India and efforts to make you know, common cause as ostensible neutrals. And of course, how India has responded to that. But I think it would still be helpful if we offered a bit of an overview. And let's start with Indian public opinion on the war, the, the views of media and political elites, also popular views, and perhaps you know some sense of how Indian views on the war line up with partisan politics in India, if indeed they do at all. So maybe, Manjuri, you can start us off and talk a little bit about the major media outlets and how they are talking about the war. And then, Manoj, in just a bit, since you've looked at this quite closely, you can talk a little bit more about public opinion, you being there on the ground at all. Great. Yes. Thanks, Kaiser. So it's interesting because, you know, you've talked about popular opinion in India on the war, and there are layers and layers of opinion in India. So you have elite opinion, which is, of course, policymakers and, and uh, leaders in government and, and politicians and so on. Then you have the media. Uh, right in India, which mm-hmm, is which is mm-hmm. uh, still very uh, free and fair, although there there have been there have been changes to that. Then you know you have the middle class uh, in India, which is really a very vast consumer of news uh, in India, both in English and in in vernacular languages. And then you know you mm-hmm. have uh, you know in India politicians called the masses, right? So you have large swaths of the Indian population for whom foreign policy is not on their radar. So there are these layers. Right. So I think what's interesting in India today is that you see particularly in the media, much more division on the Ukraine war and Russia's role in it than you would have seen maybe five uh, or 10 years ago. Hmm. So, you know, while the, as you've noted, the Indian government is being very careful to stay neutral on the invasion, the Indian media, on the other hand, has debated both the pros and cons of doing this. Mm -hmm. And it has also, in fact, you know, many outlets have called Russia out. They've talked about the war as an invasion. They've accused Russia of violating the rights of a sovereign country, Ukraine. And even, you know, that that has also ranged the spectrum uh, from right to left wing. So even on the right wing where there is sympathy for Russia, uh, there have been coverage of, of, for example, the killings in, in Bucha. And, mm-hmm, uh, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, the, the word genocide has been used as well. So I think you see a plethora of opinions in the media uh, that is new and that's really interesting and that would not have existed uh, five to 10 years ago. Yeah. And we'll get to, to why that change has taken place uh, in, in a little bit. Well, I know when we go further down in that hierarchy from away from the media elites and maybe talk a little bit about more popular opinion. How, how, how are the masses, as it were, or the middle class responding to this? Right. Look, I think, I think Manjuri sort of covered that quite well when she said that there is a strata of society which is not necessarily engaged with foreign policy at all. Yet the impact in terms of inflation, commodity prices, uh, all of that is being starkly felt, uh, you know, uh, and this is a, over the last month or so, you've seen fuel prices in India go up every day, bit by bit by bit. Uh, and that's been covered regularly by the media. So th- those are the kind of things that people are immediately feeling the pinch of. 
And so that sort of brings the war to Indian homes and it makes it much more real to people who may not be engaged in foreign policy. On social media, what we are seeing is essentially... I mean, my initial thought on this was that there is a divide in terms of, you know, folks who see this sort of historic relationship with Russia and who see that sort of sentimentality in being pro-Russia and understanding of Russian security concerns vis-a-vis the others who sort of see uh, this as a violation of international norms and are very critical of uh, the kind of actions that have taken place, such as the killings in Bucha. And you see that divide. But I think Running at the heart of all of this on social media, particularly, which again is not a, the best barometer of broader public opinion, right. but what you see is it's it's one of the loudest voices, so at least it gets covered. But what you see is that there's a much more pro-government position that people are taking. So mm-hmm. essentially, anything that is critical of the Indian government and its foreign policy gets pushed back. Uh, and uh, since uh, a lot of countries in the West have been, you know, critical raising this moral sort of standpoint of India needing to take a position, criticize Russia, that's led to a lot of pushback. So while there is criticism of Russia, the fact that the West is pushing India to criticize Russia is what leads to a lot more pushback. So I think it's more nationalism than necessarily anything else that's driving what's happening on social media. Pushing, but pushing not really all that hard. I, as I was uh this morning, looking at uh, what Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman was saying in Brussels just today, the tone that she had toward China and the tone that she had toward India were, were markedly different. You know, when it came to China, it was all this stuff about, you know, failing to condemn the invasion, voting against the expulsion from the UN Human Rights Commission, repeating Kremlin disinformation talking points even. Uh, but on India, here's what she said. Um, and this is according to an SCMP reporter who is live tweeting from her press conference, so it's it's not a direct quote, but she's, he wrote, India is an incredibly consequential country for us all. It's a messy democracy, but so are we. They're a young democracy. They're very worried about the PRC. They understand their military built on Russian weapons probably doesn't have a future based on Russia. So yeah, a, a whole lot softer tone uh, coming from the U.S. on that. So not, not pushing like they are on China, which I think is, is very interesting. Um. Great. Manoj, I wanted to follow up with one thing, though, because in one of your newsletters, I think it was from early April, you wrote about the discussion uh, on Russia and Ukraine in the Indian parliament, and you had 28 MPs that you sort of summed up who had spoken about the war. Was there a noticeable partisan divide? I know that Madhuri talked about how in the media, irrespective of whether we're talking about sort of more right-wing or left-wing outlets, there was kind of a a, a melange of, of different... Um, opinions. But in Parliament, was there, say, a difference between the BJP and its allied parties versus, say, Congress? Or or was there a regional or sectional divide? So, to be honest, not really. I think there was Uh. uh, a lot of commonality. That said, it's important to note that the left, the official left in India is politically sidelined. So, you know, even if the left has a voice, it's politically inconsequential at present in India. Um, So that's so I presume they would be very uh, critical of India's foreign policy. But uh, I think the rest of them were very, very on board. I think uh, the view was and some of the MPs were quite quite sort of blunt about this. For example, Shashi Tharoor, who's from the Congress party, his view was that, look, uh, we understand that the Russians have done something which is uh, not correct. Uh, And what sort of friends are we if we don't point that out to them? So there was that degree of criticism that India should be taking a little bit more of a moral position on this. India should be being critical of Russia, particularly given the way the invasion has gone. And India should also potentially take a greater role in terms of trying to mediate peace. 
all of which the Indian government is not clear, is clearly not interested in doing. But in general, the navigation of the kind of challenges that this uh, invasion has thrown up, I think there was far more support uh, of the Indian government's handling of things. A lot of this discussion also focused on the evacuation of Indian citizens from Ukraine. And again, mm-hmm. in that, there was some degree of criticism, but there was general support of how the Indian government had managed it. So I think we saw far more agreement than disagreement. Uh, where we, What I thought was interesting about that debate was the fact that there was an acknowledgement that India's policy and India's strategic interests uh, were far more closely tied to the West, which I think was interesting. What was also interesting was that everybody, uh, most of the speakers who spoke about things like the Russian relationship with China, clearly were concerned about that relationship uh, and the potential impact of this invasion on that relationship deepening right. and what that would mean for India's security. Fantastic. Yeah, and if I could, if I could add something to that, Kaiser, what, you know, I, I agree with, with with what Manoj said, and you can actually see this not just on Ukraine, right? There is a lot of continuity uh, in Indian foreign policy between governments, irrespective of whether it has been the BJP or the Congress. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is the nomenclature changes, right? And so if you look at what the Modi government is saying and doing, they have not once used the word non-alignment, even once, Uh, even though practically what they're doing is non-alignment. And that's because non-alignment is indelibly associated with the policies of Jawaharlal Nehru, uh, you know, who was uh, mm-hmm. India's first prime minister uh, and of the Congress party. And uh, the BJP says they're very different from the Congress. So they will not use the term non-alignment. They use strategic autonomy, which, uh, you know, in practice essentially means the same thing, but <laughs> they've changed the term. And so so what you see is a change in nomenclature and unwillingness to say that there is continuity, but in practice there's continuity. That's fascinating. Yeah, uh, it's always important to look at the, the political, the deployment of political language and and the the divides that it right. wants to signal. Yeah, um, I think before we go much further, it might be helpful if we could offer a kind of potted history of relations between India and first the Soviet Union and after 1991 Russia, and maybe we can take this back and try to do it, you know, fairly quickly to 1947 because you know it's hard to miss how often Indian commentators who do advocate backing Russia, talk about, you know, all that Moscow has done for New Delhi. There's a lot of nostalgia in it. So maybe take us all the way up to the eve of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Manoj, maybe you can start. And then I'll turn to Manjari and you can talk about work, you know, China into this. You know, how has Moscow tried to navigate the Sino-Indian crisis? And then, of course, how has New Delhi viewed its relationship with Beijing all the way up to, you know, the ugly brawl in, in the Galwan Valley? So let's start with you, Manoj. Right. So uh, this this is tricky, right? I've been doing yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, it's a big ask. history. <laughs> um, but uh, I mean, let, let me just begin with you know when we think of this history, I, I agree with you. I think there's far more nostalgia than there is focus on facts, uh, even in Indian public discourse uh, with regard to the Soviet Union. Uh, but I mean, for anybody who's listening who's unfamiliar with this terrain, I mean, there are three key points and prisms to keep in mind when thinking about India's foreign policy and its engagement with the Soviet Union since 1947. Firstly, when India became independent, you know, there was this deep imprint of colonial of the colonial experience on the Indian psyche. It had tremendous developmental challenges uh, and the state was essentially going to be uh, a major actor in the economy and for and sort of promoting social reform. So the idea that the state would not take a leading role was not necessarily ever going to work at that point of time. Um, There was empathy with the developmental model and the challenges of development the Soviet Union was encountering. I think Nehru had visited the Soviet Union in 1927. So there was a sense that there is stuff that you could learn from there. Mm -hmm. At the same time, because of colonialism and that experience, India was extremely wary of dependencies on external powers. So that's one thing to keep in mind. The next thing is that 
I think that when we look at the India-Soviet Union relationship, and I'm sure Manjari will talk about this, so I don't want to take too much space on this. But the idea that it's not necessarily this entire period from 47 to 71, which is the war which led to the creation of Bangladesh. I think mm-hmm. that entire period is a period of flux in some way. There are lots of moving parts. And if you want to think of why and how the Indian relationship with Soviet Union developed, you have to think of it as not just the India-Soviet Union relationship, but also as India's relationship with the United States, Pakistan, China, and the relationships of these entities with each other. Because right. that interplay is what led to the, sort of the choices and the options that India took. Uh, and the balance of power that this shaped is what led to India's relationship with the Soviet Union deepening. And the third sort of key point is that, you know, Indian policy, even back then, because of its wariness of external dependence, was one of a, having a diversified portfolio of external partners as much as possible. Uh, with that said, um, if I was to go back to 47, the Soviet Union was already talking about camp politics. Stalin wasn't particularly interested in a deeper relationship with India. He saw India you know, as a legacy of the British Raj, as an inheritor of the British Raj. And sort of from, a, from that colonial sort of capitalist viewpoint, uh, the relationship changed once Khrushchev came to power. And at that, in those early years, I think India was also, like I said, looking for a diversified portfolio. Nehru in 1949 visited the United States where he spoke about the possibility of a Sino-Soviet split uh, mm-hmm. down the road sometime. So he sort of saw that relationship in the prism of nationalism. And, you know, the United States looked at India as a possible democratic partner in the region, particularly after the so-called loss of China uh, and the establishment of the PRC. Um, but yeah, like once Khrushchev came to power, I think the relationship started to change. Khrushchev looked at the relationship as a potential test case for the Soviet engagement with, uh, you know, the developing world or back then the third world. And at the same time, you saw the United States shifting closer to Pakistan, right? There was a mutual defense agreement in 1954. There was the Sento agreement, uh, which right. the United States was not a part of, but, you know, uh, it was with U.S. partners. So that was sort of the framework of that relationship. And in the later half of the 1950s, Tensions between India and China created an impetus for India to look for a closer relationship with the Soviet Union in particular. You know, the Soviet Union was, uh, there was an economic relationship, there was a military relationship that was developing, but nowhere close to one that would eventually develop. And I think 1962, the war between India and China is a sort of good, uh, is a sort of first big inflection point where uh, the Soviet Union becomes, uh, it has, it faces this dilemma where it wants to engage with India because of its policy of, you know, working with other countries uh, in the developing world and co-opting them, particularly a country which seems friendly. India had not been critical of the Soviet Union's action that it took in Hungary in 1956. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was greater possibility of a deeper relationship. Yet when the war happened in 1962 between India and China, uh, Khrushchev, uh, you know, the choice between a friendly India and a brotherly China, uh, he chose a brotherly China. India had signed uh, a deal for transport aircrafts and MiGs with the Soviet Union in August 1962. And the Soviet Union sort of deferred on that deal temporarily. Khrushchev also offered intelligence to the Chinese regarding his engagements with Nehru and his correspondence with Nehru. Um, Hmm. So the choice, they had made that choice. And I think this is, again, not something that's discussed in Indian public discourse today. Um, Yet, once the war ended, and I think it's useful to think, it's important to think of this period, because the war coincided with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Right, right, so right. Soviet interests were also sort of divided. So it was not like it, it uh, that the war was something that it desired or it, it saw as beneficial. It saw it as an irritant, uh, as a potential spoiler. And once time went on, I think once the war ended, Khrushchev was quite publicly critical of Mao also, chiding him publicly for starting a war against a potentially friendly country. So... There was a balancing act that even they were uh, sort of engaging in. But that's the sort of first inflection point. 
uh, after that, you come to sort of Pakistan and the 65 war. India-Pakistan right. had a war in 1965. Again, this is a point of time where even Sino-Soviet ties had worsened. In that war, the Soviet Union engaged in trying to broker a peace deal between the two countries eventually. And that peace deal did take place. Nobody walked out of that peace deal happy. One part of sort of the Indian establishment walked out thinking that, well, okay, it's good to have the Soviet Union on your side. But the other challenge is that the Soviet Union doesn't necessarily have too many concerns with regards to India's territorial integrity. Because I think Brezhnev's comments about the war and India's concerns about territorial integrity were something to the effect of there are two sides to every story. Um, So there were sort of these differences. Yet what happened in 1965 was that the United States and Britain, which were key arms suppliers to India, India's post-independence, it was France and UK, which were the key arms suppliers. And India had started buying uh, military equipment from the US since 1951. But at that point in time in 65, the US and the UK imposed an arms embargo on both India and Pakistan. While Pakistan could work around that embargo, India could not. So you know, cheap, high-quality Soviet weapons were needed, particularly with a hostile China. And when the Sino-Soviet relationship continued to worsen, it was also in Soviet interest to provide these arms to India. Fast forward to 1971, which is the third sort of key inflection point, which makes this relationship what it is today in our memory, sort of this nostalgic sense of proximity. In 1971, India and Pakistan, again, there was a war that led to the creation of Bangladesh. Uh, Just prior to the war, India had signed a peace and friendship treaty with the Soviet Union, which included a clause which said that both sides would consult when there is a threat to the other uh, Mm -hmm. and consult to eliminate that threat. And, you know, uh, while the United States was firmly aligned to Pakistan at that point of time, the Soviet Union's support to India was critical uh, in executing that war from an Indian point of view. And that sort of subsequently built this close relationship, which sort of continued to deepen in all sorts of spheres from space to defense to, you know, steel and other sort of manufacturing uh, and all sorts of things. And even the trading relationship continued to grow from there. And I think the at that point of time, again, it's 1971, the relationship between the United States and China has thawed. Uh, you know, you've had that visit by Kissinger. Uh, and that's changed the sort of geopolitical environment that India is in and that Soviet Union is in. Um, right. So that creates this closer, uh, closer relationship. After that, I think the next sort of inflection point that I can talk about is the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. India did not criticize the Soviet Union publicly. It abstained from the UN Security Council vote. But it also realized that that invasion fundamentally again altered India's strategic environment. It created a deeper relationship between the US, China and Pakistan. And it also uh, exacerbated this problem which we would eventually face with regard to Islamist terrorism uh, and jihadism, which would then get exported to India. Uh, So it, it sort of narrowed India's options even further and it constrained its room for maneuver. The fall of the Soviet Union, again, uh, it, was a, it was quite a dramatic shift for India. Uh, it coincided with a time where India's economic situation itself was terrible. We were going through a balance of payments crisis, and subsequently we'd have to liberalize. So the economic environment and the geopolitical environment fundamentally altered. The 1990s was sort of a, a decade of readjustment and trying to deal with legacy issues with regard to things like the rupee-ruble trade agreement. Things started to change from, say, the late 90s. In 1998, India conducted its nuclear tests. The Soviet Union was, uh, sorry, Russia at that point of time was supportive of the nuclear tests. Boris Yeltsin had been supportive of India's position on Kashmir also previously. 
But that nuclear test did change things. And the Soviet Union went ahead with civil nuclear investments in India uh, after that test too, uh, and was supportive of India, which again, created this proximity of, you know, that this relationship is coming back to where it was in some ways. Under Putin, since 2000, Putin visited India in October 2000, that gave fresh impetus to this defense agreement and defense relationship. And it's sort of grown since then. A couple of points before I give it, hand it over to Manjuri is that, you know, when the, the decision on South Ossetia and Abkhazia took place, I think in 2008, um, India wasn't critical of that publicly. When mm. the annexation of Crimea took place, India wasn't critical of it publicly. In fact, when the annexation of Crimea took place, the Indian National Security Advisor, uh, Shiv Shankar Menon, who was in government then, had said something to the effect of, you know, that we understand the legitimate security interests of uh, Russia. Uh, ah. So it's it was a different tone from what, than what you're hearing from India today. In fact, today, India is far less approving if that was an approving tone. Right. I mean, India still doesn't recognize Crimea as, as yeah. Russian territory, right? Yeah, none of that uh, is recognized yet. You know, it's not been publicly critical. Uh, and likewise, leading up to this current invasion of Ukraine, uh, Vladimir Putin visited India in December 2021. There uh. is a long 99-point uh, joint statement that was issued between the two sides. But if you read through the statement, it tells you that there is breadth in the relationship, but there isn't necessarily the depth. The trading relationship is just under just under ten billion dollars. It varies between eight to ten billion dollars, dominated right. by defense. Uh, and there has been years and years and years of talk about diversifying that relationship to build greater depth, but it's not taken place. However, and this will be my last point. What, however, is there is that there is political trust and the lack of any fundamental conflict of interest. Now, that to me is changing, uh, and this current war in Ukraine fundamentally potentially sort of changes that conflict of interest situation which right. leads us to potentially a much more difficult relationship down the road that was a tour de force uh, well done well done and uh admirably economical so i was gonna Madhuri, say let's, let's turn <laughs> wow that's hard yeah. to fall. so that was that was really masterful manoj that is like 10 volumes of indo-soviet russian history condensed into <laughs> about seven minutes congratulations so, so I think I think Manish has done a great job with the details. So let, let me just step back and give you an overall picture, right? So I think where I divert okay. from Manoj is on the nostalgia. So he thinks that this is really more about nostalgia for the relationship, but actually, what I think it is is that if you actually look at the history of India-Soviet Union relationship, what you see are three factors that become really important, right? So once Stalin passes away and you have Khrushchev, who's much more amenable for many many reasons to India, you see three things happen that are really important in the relationship. Relationship and and continue in some aspect or the other in weakened aspects, but in some aspect or the other even today. So the first is uh, the of course the material support, right? So where mm -hmm. um, you know India uh, gets amounts of you know economic aid as well as military aid, military equipment from the Soviet Union. Uh, at very cheap prices, first of all, and without any conditions, right? So which are both, you know, music to India's ears, uh, because, you know, when it comes to uh, equipment that the United States offers, it's much more expensive and often it's extremely conditional. So um, it gets right. this from the Soviet Union. And the second thing that happens is that there is an ideological affinity. What do I mean by this? So, sorry, this is the academic in me, so I'm bringing out that phrase. But it's really <laughs> about um, the fact that you have all of these elites in India, you know, these post-colonial elites who have come to power, who are all socialists, right? They're Fabian socialists, and they deeply admire the Soviet Union. And they actually admire the Soviet Union even when Stalin was in power, but Stalin never returned mm. the favor. And so you have this ideological affinity where Indian elites look at the Soviet Union and say, this is a country 
country that is socialist uh, and communist. This is something we admire. Uh, and on top of that, they see, ironically, the Soviet Union as deeply anti-imperialist. And remember, India is a post-colonial country. And they see of the course. Soviet Union say, stating in its manifesto that it's against imperialism. So you have, uh, you know, now what we know are really bizarre things like, uh, you know, Nehru goes and visits the Soviet Union. And in his uh, letters, because he was a copious writer, he praises Soviet prisons and says, says how wonderful they are. Right. So you have this ideological <laughs> affinity. Uh, the third thing that happens is as a consequence of the material support and this ideological affinity, you have public support from the Soviet Union uh, towards India and India towards the Soviet Union on multiple occasions. Right. So, uh, for example, uh, in uh, 1961, when India annexes Goa, uh, which was a Portuguese colony, um, the right. Soviet Union supports India. In 1971, as um, Manoj talked about, in its war with Pakistan, uh, with Kashmir, multiple, multiple times in the United Nations, right? So all of this really cements the bond between the Soviet Union and India, creating this political trust that Manoj just mentioned. Now, when it comes to China, it's a little bit more complex, right? Because you have the, so the defining moment for India when it comes to China is the 1962 border war, which it loses very, very badly. Right now, in this border war, the Soviet Union's uh, position is complex. So, on one hand, what you see is this: uh, the point that Manoj raised, which is that you know the Soviet Union stalls on selling aircraft uh, to uh, India at this time, and so India actually turns to the United States, which then provides it uh, military supplies, including extreme weather clothing, um, as well as aircraft. Right now. On the other hand, what you also see, what we now know from declassified records, is you look at these conversations that Khrushchev is having with uh, Mao at the time, and what we see is the Soviet Union is really trying to play a neutral game because you have this deteriorating Sino-Soviet relationship at this point, and at the same time, the Soviet Union is more friendly with India under Khrushchev. So Khrushchev, you know, does things like he uh, directly accuses Mao uh, and blames him of killing, you know, about killing people on the uh, on the China-India border, and blames him for escalating the conflict, both private, privately and later publicly. You also have the Soviet media that actually publishes these editorials talking about Chinese atrocities against Tibetans and how the Western media have criticized China. Uh, and it stays silent on Chinese accusations of India providing support and refuge to the Dalai Lama, uh, as well as supporting the rebellion in Tibet. What you see is that because essentially of this ideological affinity, the arms provided by the Soviet Union and this public support that happens over and over again, you have this capital built up, this trust right, between India and the Soviet Union. And today what you see is remnants of that in a certain way. You're seeing the, this, this political trust that's very hard to erode because it's institutionalized over decades of support. right? And so that is also a factor. It's not the only factor, but it's definitely a factor in uh, India-Soviet Union-Russia uh, relations today. I think what ha that has been become even more complicated by now is Russia's closening relationship with China, right? So Russia went right. from essentially the Sino-Soviet split of 1964 to what we see today, which is this uh, growing affinity uh, between uh, Putin, Putin and uh, Xi Jinping. And so that really, really worries India. So now when you take on one hand this political trust that India believes it has with Russia and then pair it with the fact that India says, whoa, wait a minute, uh, you know, <laughs> the Russia is getting closer to China, which is absolutely our enemy number one, make no mistake about it. That's when you begin to see that India's position in the Ukraine crisis becomes really a lose-lose situation 
uh, no matter which way it turns. I mean, if it supports right. the United States, uh, uh, you know, it alienates Russia, drives it closer to China. It supports Russia, it alienates the United States, which has become a really important strategic partner. So there's really no good options here. Uh, and you kind of see that because of this long history of the relationship. Right. That's, uh, that's excellent. It really puts things into a very, very clear perspective. Manoj, you, you mentioned that uh, Indian trade with Russia is only 8 to $10 billion. It's generally in the high single-digit billions. Trade with China hit triple-digit billions in 2021. It was like $120 billion, I think, $118 or $120 billion. And, and you said that the Indian relationship, economic relationship with Russia is primarily still, I mean, the, 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 the lion's share of that is in military hardware. Um, what, what else does India import from Russia? Are they dependent at all for, for grain or for, uh, for hydrocarbons? Uh, I think the hydrocarbon trade is very limited. Uh, there's been mm, talk okay. about expanding Russian L- LNG supplies. There's been talk about uh, more sort of investment. But I, I think that's not really happened. And I, I think it's going to be much more difficult down the road for that to happen. I was reading today, in fact, that India sort of started exporting some degree of its primary goods uh, to Russia again. For example, tea, rice, fruits, coffee. India exports pharmaceuticals. Fertilizers is another area where the two sides have been talking about deeper trade. There's been talk about deeper engagement in coal and steel. So I think that's sort of the contours of the relationship and defense is fundamentally uh, the dominant aspect. Through the pandemic, I think we've seen uh, greater engagement with regard to health with the Russian vaccine uh, being approved in India and being used in India widely. Right, Sputnik. So I think that uh, some of that essentially, uh, but the fact that the trade needs to diversify, it needs to go into, you know, the Indian economy is a service economy predominantly. Services engagement is very limited, even in terms of what Russia manufactures. It's again, defense is the biggest component. Hydrocarbons is difficult because of, you know, just the cost of transporting and the infrastructure for transporting energy from Russia to India. If you were to do pipelines, it passes through very difficult, tricky terrain. Uh, If you were to do sea trade, uh, you know, it's extremely extremely cost inefficient. Um, So that's what limits fundamentally this thing. And I think we've been speaking about this with the Russians for a very long time, but very little has essentially moved. So Marjorie, in China, as we've talked about a lot in recent weeks on this program, attitudes toward the war in Ukraine really reflect attitudes toward the United States ultimately. What about in India? Is there something else looming in the background of discussions within India over the war and the stance that New Delhi should take? I mean, in, in other words, is it really about China for a lot of Indian people? So let me take a step back from that, actually. So first of all, I would say that attitudes even in China, you know, I mean, we don't know, right? I mean, we don't really have really great public opinion surveys of what the attitudes in China are towards the war in Ukraine and whether they align uh, with the United States. Certainly official line is that. But even when there's been digression on the official line, that's been pretty rapidly scrubbed. So it's kind of hard to know exactly what what the what the uh, you know overall sentiment is, but yes, you're right. I mean, it's very nationalistic, and it does it does seem to align with hawkish views towards the United States, particularly what we see on social media. Um, in India, it's 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 is it really all about China? It really is, in some ways, much more about China uh, than it is about Russia. Right, I would say that. I think. Mm-hmm. I think if we were, if when India looks at the Ukraine crisis, it doesn't see it the way the United States does, which is, you know, the United States sees this as this, um, you know, authoritarian regimes versus democracy and a fight for democratic order over authoritarian order. Right. That is not. I mean, India is a democracy, and that is not how India sees it. And so, uh, in that sense, India does see it as really more as what are what are the outcomes going to be 
if this war continues vis-a-vis -vis China and China's place in the world. There are two or three scenarios that could happen, right? So it's like, I mean, one, the one scenario that, that people have talked about is, of course, you know, what is China taking away from this, right? Uh, in terms of its own attitude towards historical territories and Taiwan. And in India's case, that then translates not into Taiwan, but into the border areas. What is China taking away right. from its attitude towards India's historic border areas? So that's one part of it. And the second part of it is, what is the United States taking away from this? Now, what India would really like the United States to do is to have a better relationship with Russia and work with Russia to contain China, right? Now, that's India's ideal scenario. Now, India's absolute right. non-ideal scenario is where the United States decides that it's going to work with China to contain Russia, right? That's its non-ideal scenario. And so that fear is maybe an outcome of the war in Ukraine where the, where in, in India's uh, view, in the United States might take its eye off the ball, so to speak, uh, you know, the ball being China, and, uh, you know, focus entirely on Russia, which would be deeply problematic. So, so yes, I mean, I would say for, for India, the, the Ukraine crisis, it's not about world order. It's more about world order vis-a-vis -vis China and what with this will, how this will matter uh, for China's rise geopolitically, and particularly what, how it will matter for uh, India's territories on the border. Madhuri, when we were chatting a couple of weeks ago, you raised what I thought was a really compelling point about just how important China is uh, when it comes to Indian foreign policy considerations vis-a-vis -vis the United States uh, and how U.S.-Indian relations, you were saying, always kind of lurch forward in these fits and starts and how it's always deepening. Every couple of years, you see another you know round of news reports talking about how it's deepening, but you said it never really ever quite gets there. And that the big factor, though, that does drive whether India is, in fact, deepening its relationship with the United States is the state of its relations with China. So maybe by way of giving a little bit of an historical overview of India-China relations in the, you know, there are there are warmer periods. In fact, there was a warm spell not very long ago that ended rather abruptly with uh, Galwan. Uh, but can you spell us out and offer some illustrations from recent history about how that whole dynamic works? Sure. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, I will say that everything in India happens in, in fits and starts. So <laughs> there is that aspect of it that's in the, in the country's okay. DNA. But but I think the the I think the reason I mentioned that to you was because um, it 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 really does make me laugh because every couple of years you'll see an article by yet another pundit talking about how India U.S. relations have deepened, and uh, you know, I, as an academic, I assure you that. Going back 30 or 40 years, there are articles that talked about how the India-U.S. relationship had deepened. And of course, it never really deepened, right? So it's this deepening uh, and how India is uh, would be a wonderful strategic partner to counterbalance China. That Those words have been around since 1947. Um, and every right. few years, somebody trots them out and talks about them again. Uh, and how it's so if it were any more deep, we'd be at the bottom of the ocean, but we're not there. So anyway... <laughs> I don't think it's completely accurate to say that it's all about China. Uh, it's also about the U.S.'s geopolitical uh, calculations, right? So, right. I mean, in India-China's case, it, the 1962 war was really fundamentally transformative for Indian foreign policy in a way that it wasn't for China, right? So China does not regard the 1962 war the way India does. Uh, for India, it was right. transformative because, uh, you know, it, 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 it took a relationship that it had with China, which was actually quite good and, and built on this idea of like anti-colonialism. Uh, and, you know, there was this very popular slogan at that time, Hindi, Chini, Bhai, Bhai, which means, you know, India, China, brothers. Um, and right. then that, and, you know, 
uh, Nehru again, as I said, was was a socialist. He was deeply admiring of 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 communist China, and then that becomes this border clash, and India really badly loses this, right? And so after 1962 is when India designates its foreign policy and starts really ramping up its military uh, and its defense equipment with an eye towards China. And what's really interesting is in, in 1998, when India goes nuclear, uh, India doesn't cite Pakistan, right? It, it talks about China. China China is the reason it goes nuclear. And so uh, I, there's, this, there's this quote that I often use in my writings, and I'll say it because I love it so much. A very high-ranking Indian official once said this to me. And the, we were talking about China and Pakistan, and they said, oh, you know, Pakistan, Pakistan's just an enemy. China is the adversary, you know? And that is uh. really, uh, you know, was emblematic of, 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 of India's attitude and the difference between them. And so I think that spillover definitely dictated. I mean, when you look at the decline of the Soviet Union in, in the 1990s, uh, you know, and, and the rise of China, it absolutely influences India's decision to deepen its strategic partnership with the United States. But I mean, it's also the United States, which looks to India at this time, you know, in the 1990s, there's still this perception that, that China will eventually democratize and, you know, become just like us if we co-opted into the liberal order. And that doesn't happen. And the United States, and especially now, when you look at the attitude towards China, it's, it's completely different, right? The threat perception of China is very high. It's, it's bipartisan. It cuts across parties. And so uh, India becomes also really, really important for the, for the United States. And so you see this meshing that happens in the post-Cold War world. And then the third part of it that comes up is, you know, the United States starts talking about the Indo-Pacific and an Indo-Pacific strategy. Well, you know, the Indo in Indo-Pacific comes from India. Without India, you don't have an Indo-Pacific strategy. You have a Pacific strategy. And so that also becomes an important linchpin. And it's interesting because the United States kind of wakes up to the realization that India is a democracy, uh, something that had always been the case, but had never really mattered, I mean, in terms of India-U.S. relations that much. I mean, India was India was never a threat to the United States. It was never an enemy, but it didn't consider it in terms of like friend, really friendly, deep relations. But that also becomes, becomes important, right? China's authoritarian. And so India is this, you know, probably perhaps like-minded democracy that the United States can work with. And so you have all of these factors that converge, um, you know, to make this partnership in the post-Cold War world, India's uh, preoccupation with China, um, the United States' preoccupation with China, the decline of the Soviet Union, uh, as well as the turn towards the Indo-Pacific. Right. And despite the difficulties now since February 24th, we still see American diplomats showing very, very different attitudes toward India than they do toward China, like I just gave you in that quote from Wendy Sherman in Brussels. Manoj, India is certainly not the only country in the world toward which Chinese diplomacy can be pretty reliably tone deaf. From what I've observed, the tone deafness is particularly pronounced, though, when it comes to India. Uh, This was on display once again with Wang Yi's visit to uh, New Delhi last month. So Manoj, we start with you, but then, you know, Manjari, please feel free to jump in. Can you talk about why you think Beijing fails to grasp again and again how what it says will fall on, on, on Indian ears? And then after that, maybe we can talk about what happened specifically on Wang Yi's visit to New Delhi in March and his meeting with S. Jai Shankar. Right. Uh, 
before I get to that, I just wanted to add two more points to what Manjuri said about the India-US relationship uh, and the sort of role of China. I think sure. there were also sort of, uh, if you look at the po- sort of the post the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, like I said, India also went through an economic crisis uh, and Indian policy, sh- economic policy shifted. Uh, and that was sort of a key factor in terms of how India looked at the United States also uh, and this liberal international order, uh, if there was anything ever of that sort. Um, and at the same time, I think through the 1990s, if you look at the sort of people-to-people engagement between India and the United States, that fundamentally started to change. There were many more Indians who were going to study uh, in, in the U.S. and just the West in general. Um, yeah. uh, you know, popular culture in India uh, had people uh, studying abroad. Uh, you know, most in most Bollywood movies, which are of the, about the rich and the affluent, had somebody going abroad to study or somebody coming back from studying abroad uh, and things like that. So the aspirational nature of society also shifted in terms of looking towards the West. Um, and lastly, of course, I think terrorism and sort of much more agreement with regard to the threat of Islamist terrorism. Uh, You know, when uh, post-September 11th, I mean, one of the sort of views in India was that, well, now you realize what we've been telling you for over a decade. Um, And so there was much more sort of uh, agreement on all those sorts of things also. Uh, And I think even through that period, if you look at India, it's been much more wary about talking about China openly. Uh, when it comes to its engagement with the U.S., uh, you know, uh, in 2005, as early as 2005, once Mohan Singh was then prime minister, visited the U.S., he was categorically asked about India's engagement with the United States being about China. And he was categorically in denial that, you know, this is right. not about China. This is about something else. Um, and at the same time, India was pursuing closer relationship with China also. Right. To, coming to the point as to why uh, I think that, you know, Uh, there is tone deafness. I think it has a lot to do with a certain amount of, because if you look at the sort of engagement between India and China, and you look at the conversations that Beijing is currently having with DC, uh, you'll see a parallel, right? Uh, What China is telling DC is very similar to what India is telling China. Uh, uh, There's a a stark parallel, right? You know, where it is about, uh, if you look at what Indian Foreign Minister Jay Shankar spoke a few a couple of years ago in terms of the relationship with China. He talked he talked about these three mutuals: mutual respect, equality, you know, uh, mutual appreciation for each other's aspirations, and things like that, um, which is very similar to what Beijing tells sure. DC nowadays. <laughs> um, yet, I don't so think that it's regist- five mutuals or something. <laughs> yeah, so I don't think that registers, uh, and I, I think that doesn't res- register necessarily is because uh, of what. What exactly is China's perception of its place in the world? Firstly, it sees itself, in my view, as the leader in Asia, but to begin with, if nothing else. And India, in that sense, can be a spoiler in that ambition. Uh, so that's sort of one of the views. Secondly, I think historically there's been a perception of India as a messy democracy, as, uh, you know, uh, economically a country that, uh, you know, uh, sort of that, that little engine that could have but didn't, uh, that sort of perception, I think, that persists. <laughs> uh, at the same time, I think a lot of how China views the world is through the prism of the United States and its competition with the United States. And therefore, it places India within that spectrum, which denies Indian uh, you know, foreign policy the agency, agency right. of actually acting. And I think that's uh, fundamentally a problem. Now, is that a structural problem with great powers? Perhaps. Uh, you know, uh, and I think that's uh, those are sort of the reasons why I think there is tone deafness and that continues. And I, th- I don't think Beijing at present feels that it needs to make the kind of concessions that it uh, that India desires it to make. And, and the flip side of this argument is that if there was some sort of a negotiation between India and China to reset the relationship in some ways, what is it that Beijing desires from India? 
is that tangible enough for India to give it that? And I think Yun Sun makes this point in one of her pieces in the last, I've read in the last couple of years where she argues that what Beijing desires from Delhi is intangible. It desires not a close relationship with the United States. But how do you define that? Uh, right. What are the red lines in that? Uh, and what sort of commitments would Beijing accept? Um, so I think those are structural reasons why the relationship is going to remain difficult. Uh, but fundamentally, I think the view is that, my view is that I think it's a largely a product of China viewing the world through the prism of its competition with the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that you're right, though, that it, there is part of it, and you hinted at this, that it is structural, it is sort of endemic to great powers to, to be tone deaf toward, you know, the one sort of that they regard as hierarchically sort of below them. But, but also, I think you're, you're absolutely right. What if you tried to ask any Indian person or any Chinese person, what do you ultimately want from the relationship with India? There, there aren't tangible. It's not like the Indian market is closed to China. There's $120 billion in trade, and it's mostly unidirectional. Uh, there's a gigantic trade deficit. Yeah, I mean, I think it, the, these aren't, aren't easy to put into words. It's something to do with, yeah, you know, we'd like you to maybe quit the quad, to put some distance between your, your, yourself and, and D.C., and that's, that's about it. What about you, Marjorie? What, what would you add? I, I think this is a really interesting discussion about why, because it's it's so hard to quantify exactly why China doesn't get India, but it really doesn't. Um, and, yeah. you know, I, I think Manoj is right. I think it does uh, view the world in terms of the United States. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, once I was at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences and the number of U.S. experts you had were like a dime a dozen, right? Everybody was a U.S. expert. Right, right. Uh, but uh, people who worked in India, there were maybe like one, you know, one person or one, two people people. And you'd really more tend to find them in the southern states. So, you know, Shanghai would have more, right? Um, you know, Yunnan right, right, right. Um, uh, would have more India experts because t- towards the southern states. But in the in Beijing, no. And so that was interesting. But, you know, it's also more than that. I mean, it's, I think it's also simplistic to reduce it to just that. It's also the fact, I mean, I, I actually think about, uh, you know, in, in terms of historically, even before the 1962 war, which, by the way, China really did not grasp how important that war was to India. Um, right. But even before that, you see some of these late Tensions, right? So, um, and you know, uh, there was a conference in 1955 in Bandung, uh, in Indonesia, which brought together African and American, uh, sorry, African and Asian nations for the very first time uh, to protest against colonialism. And this was, I mean, this is huge, mm-hmm. right? I mean, this is the first time in the history of the world uh, you have these developing countries, so-called third world, as we used to call it, uh, get together. And come together to right. condemn uh, colonialism. And Bandung is the first time that China has an international audience, right? It's invited to Bandung. And so what you see even in Bandung is Nehru trying to mentor Zhou Enlai and like introduce China to the world of nations, um, you know, because right. China, India is a leader, an organizer at Bandung. And it turned out Zhou Enlai really resented that. He did not like that one bit. And you then, you, you know, fast forward to the negotiations in, um, in the border territories. This is like the last negotiations uh, that before a war actually breaks out in 1962, uh, and Joan Lai comes to Delhi uh, to talk to Maharaji Desai and to Nehru, and there are these transcripts of the negotiations, and it's fascinating to read where, you know, it's kind of like two preschoolers having an argument about, you know, who's been more wow. colonized and who's suffered more and who has more claim to like the mantle of, uh, you know, leadership because they've been colonized. So it's just really interesting because you see that you see those latent tensions about, you know, who's top dog in Asia and how uh, and, you know, what experience they've had 
uh, that allows them to claim that mantle and that leadership. Uh, and then, of course, you know, fast forward uh, to the 1990s when China begins outstripping uh, India in terms of economic and military capabilities. Uh, and then you, of course, have this imbalance and that that kind of cements this uh, this hierarchy uh, and these tensions that have been that have been latent. So I'll just go on to Wang Yi's visit. I mean, it struck me that, that Wang Yi was hoping to offer something like an olive branch to lower the temperature at least. Uh, he had a line about, you know, China rejecting the idea of a unipolar Asia, which means, you know, we, we don't want to be the hegemon of the region and respecting India's role. Um, how did how did Beijing misread New Delhi so badly on this? I think, think they have fundamentally different positions on this, right? I mean, what China would like is for India to set aside the border issue, for India to not fall into the United States' camp, and for India to continue its current position on Russia. Uh, but, you right. know, for India, it's a huge trust deficit, right? So, uh, you know, Wang Yi talking about Kashmir, going back to the tone deafness, uh, did not help. Uh, and so for India, it just can't afford to set aside the border issue. Uh, it thinks that there was a status quo on the border that was actually shattered by China. And while India doesn't want to join any uh, United States camp, it also does not want to do anything that pushes Russia into a China camp. So I think if the aim is that, you know, once, I mean, what India would like is that once disengagement takes place, uh, right, there would be a gradual de-escalation. And, uh, you know, eventually there'd be these pre-April 2020 locations, the troops would pull back along with equipment. And so India would like a, a complete return to the status quo and assurances that the status quo will not be violated. Although India has also not been very clear about exactly what it expects uh, along the border. But I think there's a fundamental disconnect in how they see their positions. Mandoj, is there a possible scenario in which Beijing actually does satisfy Indian hopes and, and desires for the settlement of the border issue and in which China actually can enlist India in this sort of Bandung II idea of its devising. Is is that even within the realm of possibility, or do you think China is wasting its time? I, I honestly don't think that it's within the realm of possibility. Uh, but then, I mean, you never say no to anything. Um, sure. But I, I, it's really, really remote in my view. Uh, I mean, I think, look, Wang Yi's trip in some ways was successful from his point of view. Um, the reporting tells us that India will be part, uh, will be attending the BRICS summit. Prime Minister Modi will be attending the BRICS summit. Uh, yeah. It'll be done online, uh, which I guess is a uh, easy solution for everybody. Um, <laughs> so I think in that sense, uh, that's one outcome that is positive from a Chinese point of view. Uh, I agree with Manjuri. I think uh, from an Indian point of view, uh, at, at this present moment, uh, it's about the boundary issue, and it's not just not just about the positions on the boundary, it's uh, what that represents. And what that represents is, uh, uh, from, from Delhi's point of view, is Chinese coercion. And the fact that remains alive and the potential for coercion at any point of time uh, remains alive. Uh, it keeps India, firstly, for any Indian government, it's politically destabilizing to have that coercive sort of sword hanging over your head. Uh, sure. you know, and this is a government which enjoys tremendous popularity and uh, a majority in parliament. Yet it politically has struggled to manage this narrative around the incursions. Secondly, I think it represents the fact that Beijing wants to keep Delhi busy uh, on its continental boundaries. Uh, it wants to drain resources, uh, Indian resources, to be dedicated to its boundaries, which make it difficult for India to invest in maritime power development, uh, which mm. is again an area where, you know, uh, I mean, I, I think India has not done itself too many favors in that, in that domain in terms of how it's gone about developing maritime power, but this adds far more strain in terms of that. Thirdly, I think it 
again represents this fact that while China is saying and while Wang Yi said that, you know, uh, we don't want a unipolar Asia, he also said something to the effect of we appreciate India's historical role in the region. Yet at the same time, he organized a foreign minister summit on Afghanistan, specifically excluding India. And if the argument was that India is not a direct neighbor of Afghanistan, well, neither is Indonesia. But Indonesia was invited. Right. So it's, it's useful to see what they're doing while they're saying what they're saying. And I think New Delhi is watching all of this. Um, why I don't think that we will see uh, any sort of thaw is partly because I don't think, uh, my sense is that I don't think that Beijing is currently interested in something like that. Uh, and it has not been interested mm. for a long time in actually settling the boundary dispute. Um, uh, you know, there's been a conversation between special representatives on the boundary for a very long time now. And at a point of time, there was talk about both sides sharing maps about mutual perceptions of where you think your territorial claims lie. And again, uh, from an Indian point of view, the uh, when India shared its map, Beijing balked at it and it returned the map and it, that conversation went no further. So wow. if you're not even willing to share where your, what your claim is, it's really difficult to arrive at a solution to this. Um, you know, structurally, I don't think that therefore we are going to see something like this happen. Now, is there a possibility down the road somewhere in the future? I think that'll have to take that'll have to require a significant change of heart in Beijing, uh, which I don't see happening. Indeed. I want to talk a little bit about the personal relationships between and among Xi, Putin, and Modi. Um, Manjari, you know, a lot has been made about the uh, relationship between Modi and Putin. How close are they, in fact, if at all? I mean, I remember us chatting with Manoj and he says, you know, Modi hugs everybody, right? I was exactly going to say that. <laughs> 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 I was going to bring up that quote. I remember Manoj saying that and thinking it was exactly apt. He hugs everybody. Uh, you know, yeah, I don't yeah. think there is, uh, I, I have not heard of any kind of deep personal relationship between Modi and any world leader, let alone Putin and, mm -hmm. and Xi. So uh, I think that's, uh, uh, I don't think that's the rapport that they have. I think the, the I think the, what they might have is political capital, but that's you know that's really more with the with Russian diplomats and the Russian government and this level of trust that we that Manoj and I spoke about, uh, rather than any personal rapport, leader to leader. Right, right. I, I'm personally very skeptical about any claims about close personal relationships between and among leaders who don't speak you know the same language. Yeah. Yes, yes. I think if there is if there is a personal relationship that we could talk about that Modi's had with the world leader, I think the closest that you would come to is Shinzo Abe. Uh, yeah. I think that, uh, that was a, a particularly close yeah. relationship. Uh, 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 and that was a personal relationship which also led to deeper India-Japan cooperation. Yeah, and the quad, the entry into the quad. I want to also ask about any obvious tensions that there are in the, the Russo-Indian relationship? I mean, aside from the war itself, which, of course, puts a strain on things because of, you know, like you said, the inflation, uh, rising petrol prices and so forth. But Putin couldn't have been happy, for example, about the nuclear deal between George W. Bush and Manman Singh. Um, he was probably not very happy about India joining this revived and reorganized quad uh, not that it was specifically aimed against Russia, but, you know, now he looks to his east and sees another security arrangement, a kind of, you know, NATO for Asia. Uh, so are are these tensions anything that, that are, are talked about uh, in the Russian media that you've seen? Are are they anything that um, that Indian analysts bring up? Or are, are they, you know, pretty negligible all in all? 
Um, well, I, I actually don't follow Russian. I don't speak Russian, so I do not follow Russian language media, I'll be honest. Uh, but so I don't know what uh, the Russian media have, have spoken about with regards to this. I do know that India was concerned, has been concerned about its uh, deepening, I'm going to use the word deepening, relationship <laughs> with the United States. And it's entering into the quad and it's been acutely aware uh, that it has implications for its relationship with Russia. So I would say that India is sensitive to any tensions on Russia's part when it comes to the Quad and the India-United States relationship and is aware that, and this is one of the paradoxes that, in, well, par- the dilemmas that India faces, that by becoming closer to the United States, uh, does how does it become closer to the United States, uh, diversify its defense equipment, but yet not alienate Russia? How does it take part in the Quad uh, you know, and and expand its cooperation with with uh, you know Australia, the United States, and Japan, and yet not give any um, uh, indication that this smacks of any kind of camp or alliance, uh, and not alienate Russia. So India has been very very sensitive that there may be tensions on Russia's part, and India does believe to a certain extent that that it's because of the the strategic partnership with the United States, which by the way, in the last ten years, I mean, we, we have to, we haven't discussed this, but I should say this: this is not the relationship ten years ago or twenty years ago, right? right. I mean, uh, let's not forget that the United States placed sanctions on India after the nuclear tests. So this is a very different relationship today, and that's apparent. You know, whatever the fits and starts, it's now in. You know, it's it's gone further than that. Uh, Madri, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you had a, a great illustration of this. I know I just want to plug something that you do, uh, which is. is it's very cool. You work on something for CFR called Women You Should Know in India. It's the series. And you were telling me when we were speaking earlier about how that really reflects this broad, uh, really kind of astonishingly broad uh, set of relationships that India now has that have just developed. And as you remind us, only in the last 20 years with the United States. Maybe could you talk a little bit about that and tell listeners where they can find um, women you should know in India? Yes. Thank you for the shout out. That's awesome. Yes. So this is a project that I just launched at the Council on Foreign Relations called the Women You Should Know in India Project. And what we do is um, uh, twice a month, we interview uh, women in India, very senior women uh, in the field who can speak to sectors of the India-US relationship that matter. And essentially, when we talk about the India-United States relationship, we're really only talking about security, right? I mean, I work on security as well. But what we're doing is bringing in all the different ways in which the India-US relationship have expanded to have this, you know, depth that that Manoj was just talking about that that's lacking in the India-Russia relationship. And so actually, one of the interviews just came out today um, with um, Andrew Srivastav, uh, who is uh, the managing director of Wingreens uh, Farming, which is a farm-to-table food company uh, that you know that empowers farmers and and essentially talks about how uh, India can meet a demand for ethical sourcing of food and organic food that consumers actually have in the United States, and how there's opportunities to invest in these tech startups uh, in India. Uh, we had interviews uh, a while ago with with uh, a constitutional lawyer uh, who you know talked about uh, how uh, India actually has some of the the most extensive uh, protections uh, in the world, and yet how these are being uh, rolled back and why that matters uh, for the United States. Um, We interviewed uh, Kriti Karanth a couple of weeks ago, who is the head 
of uh, the Wildlife Conservation Society of India, if I remember correctly. And she mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. talked about how the U.S. Department of Wildlife and Fisheries has funded uh, conservation in India for decades, uh, irrespective of which party has been in power in the United States uh, and how it's continued to do so. So actually, you know, when you have talk, uh, when, you, when you talk about the saving of the rhino and the elephant and the tiger, um, a lot of that comes from U.S. taxpayer money. And that that relationship has really developed, and so what you see is this this depth uh, that exists across sectors, uh, you know, that has really developed over the last twenty years uh, and did not exist twenty years ago, uh, and so I think that's what's going to carry the relationship forward as well. Interestingly, though, with China, you could almost say that, have said the same thing up to before uh, twenty twenty. You could have looked at the Indo-Chinese relationship and said, you know what, it's actually trending very positive as, as well. There is engagement on a whole lot more levels. There are a lot of Indian entrepreneurs. There are a lot of Chinese entrepreneurs now uh, operating in India. There's a lot more activity connection points besides at that sort of uh, leadership level, more commercial interests happening. But, you know, that, of course, is gone now. <laughs> well, I don't think there was ever uh, the, you know, the thing is there's always been a trust deficit between India and China. That's the issue. And there's always been the border issue looming in the background. With the United States, you don't have that. Right. I mean, you don't have you never had political capital, but you didn't have a trust deficit either. Exactly. Uh, and right. you certainly right. didn't have a territorial conflict right on your doorstep. So, you know, and right. then you add to the fact that India is a democracy and the United States is a democracy. I think those things matter as well. Um, so, yeah, you're right. I mean, look at the trade relationship between China and India today. It's it's huge. It's, uh, you know, what did, you, what did you say? 125 billion. 120 billion. Right. Yeah. And the United yeah. States and India is, I think, about 112 billion. But despite that, I would still say that it lacks uh, depth. It has breadth, but it lacks depth. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas mm -hmm. the United States uh, and India relationship really has started. <laughs> there's that word again. I've heard it's deepening. deepening. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard it's deepening too. <laughs> uh, fantastic. You know, you guys, I, as I was prepping for this, I was thinking about how, you know, China wants to see a more genuinely multipolar world. It fears that with the U.S. and the EU really closing ranks over the war, there's a real danger that, you know, if Russia is militarily defeated and diplomatically isolated, ostracized, we're going to see a post-Cold War unipolar world continue on. Uh, I mean, it'll be sort of back to what it used to be. But then I thought that perhaps from where India sits, the world already looks really multipolar. I mean, this has come up again and again. I mean, it, it's a very complicated polyhedron that India sees. It's never a simple triangle. It's never, you know, just a bipolar world that it looks at. It, uh, that's That's been fascinating to me. Can you guys talk about how the Indian take on the geopolitical and geoeconomic state of the world is right now and, and, and what India's preferred scenario for a post-Ukraine war world would be. I mean, we talked about this a little bit, you know, what, what the ideal Indian scenario would be, uh, but as implausible that is, I'm just picking from among more, more realistic scenarios that, that, that might emerge. What, what does India hope comes out of this? Right. So in terms of, I think, how India views the world and sort of the world order right now, um, I, I think that it's sort of a G2 and a half. Right? Ah, so that's good. You've like got <laughs> uh, the U.S. and China and you've got Russia, which is militarily extremely relevant. Uh, and I think that's uh, and that's obviously unstable. You should patent uh, that, Manoj, G2 and a half. Uh, yeah, G2 and a half. <laughs> Copyrighted. Uh, and I think that I think that uh, along with that, uh, in terms of when it comes to multipolarity, I think you'd hear the Indian official sort of statements talking about multipolarity as an aspiration. 
but uh, I, I think that sort of obscures the fact of what multipolarity means. Does that mean equal poles, which clearly we're not going to have? Yeah. Uh, does that sort of multipolarity with deeply imbalanced poles, uh, with China being obviously the dominant pole in Asia, is that to India's benefit? Um, so the way I see it, and I don't know how Delhi sees it, but the way I see it, that's clearly not in India's benefit. Um, yeah. to, that if, to that extent... A world order which is tilted towards American power continues to benefit India Um, because it allows India the space to continue to grow. And also from a values point of view, uh, you know, uh, I think, uh, you know, uh, this is personal. I think that I'd be far more, my affinities lie far more with values where there is freedom of speech, freedom of expression, you know, equality and all of that. Uh, And obviously, uh, apart from that, also the ability to question government. Um, I think all of those are kind of values which uh, are great from an Indian point of view, liberal values which are great from an Indian point of view. Um, And I think this is partly also a domestic debate which in India is currently underway. Um, So from that point of view, I think when I look at the world order um, for the foreseeable future, given the fact that China's rise is not something which is transient, it's there to stay. Uh, China is going to be next door to India. Uh, we are going to have to deal with a country which is far more powerful and which has demonstrated that it can be politically hostile to you. Um, right. In that environment, I don't think multipolarity in that sense, I think, really works uh, uh, from an interest, Indian interest point of view. What India would like to see play out in Ukraine, I mean, ideally, of course, it would have not wanted to see the war at all. How it would like to see this end is... In that sense, I think maybe there is some commonality, right? Uh, I mean, at least rhetorically. Uh, China talks about a new European security order, which is, you know, sustainable uh, and durable. Yet in in that sense, I think China sees the EU as a far more significant geopolitical actor emerging out of all this as being a positive outcome from its point of view, which reduces EU de- European dependencies on the United States. I think India differs on that. I don't think India would mind uh, that relationship continuing. Yet it would mm-hmm. like to see accommodation of Russia, uh, you know, uh, and I sort of go back to Manjari's point, right, that uh, India would like to see the United States have a better relationship with Russia, at least a stable relationship, which allows it to focus on China. So that's right, its that's best. The, that's the unrealistic bit. <laughs> yeah. That's the, that's the sort of best case outcome. Uh, in terms of what's a realistic outcome is that actually the conflict ends soon without, right. uh, you know, without further escalation, without the potential use of, uh, you know, far more lethal weapons, uh, potentially weapons of mass destruction, uh, without some of those boundaries being crossed, without it expanding further into Europe, into different countries. Uh, so it wouldn't want to see an escalation. It would like to see the conflict ends soon uh, and potentially uh, there to be a negotiated settlement as quickly as possible. Um, uh, The realistic estimate is that even if it continues, it continues at a low grade, but there is some sort of accommodation soon before there is serious escalation, which can at least create room for Russia, uh, room for India to continue engaging with Russia. A problematic outcome for India would be a hostile United States, uh, you know, which sees India's engagement with Russia is deeply problematic and further constrains India's options in that regard. I think that would be a deeply problematic outcome. Thanks so much. Madhuri, last word to you. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree with all of that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think it's hard not to. I, I guess I'll, I'll say one last thing, and this is, this is what you get, Kaiser, for inviting an academic on the show. Um, I am going to bring in some international relations theory, which is that, you know, Manoj talked about um, how India, you know, it's quite widely known that India would, prefer, would prefer multipolarity. And what I'd say to that is, you know, uh, you know, also be careful what you wish for. 
Uh, right. So if you look at Ken Waltz's work, he talks about how a most stable world is a bipolar world uh, and multipolarity increases the risk of conflict. And so, mm. uh, you know, and India doesn't want a bipolar world because it doesn't want to choose camps uh, and it worries that it, it would have to choose a camp. But in terms of stability, not that I necessarily agree with him, with Waltz, but that is what he says. So I'm, I'm going to just leave right. it at that. And you would prefer a unipolar world, but hey, uh or, so or, or it's certainly a unipolar world with, with no Ukraine crisis ever having happened. You guys, this is fantastic. What an enjoyable conversation. And I'm not going to let you go yet. But I, I first of all, wanted to tell you, I'd love to have you both on the show again. You know, I think we'll, we'll revisit this topic. It will be evergreen and be uh, very interesting. So uh, please, uh, if, you, if you've if you got, got any new papers that you're publishing or any, any I, I mean, I already subscribed to, to Manoj's newsletter, but uh, I'll be keeping an eye out on your work as well. And let's get you back on the show soon. Thank you so much. Meanwhile, let's move on to recommendations. But first, uh, a quick reminder that the Seneca podcast is powered by SubChina. And if you want to support the work that we do here with the podcast, with the other shows in the network as well, we've got some terrific shows. Please remember that the best thing you can do is to subscribe to SubChina's China Access Newsletter. That's uh, what really helps keep the lights on here at our little humble operation. All right. So uh, on to recommendations. Marjorie, let's start with you. What have you got for our listeners? I, well, I'm just going to say this. I have just started watching Bridgerton and I recommend it. Oh. If you want to stop thinking about Ukraine, China, India, Russia, the United States, nuclear weapons, please watch Bridgerton. It's so funny because I have a recommendation that starts with exactly that same preamble. Basically, if you want to alleviate your Weltschmerz for 90 minutes or so and you don't want to think about the Ukraine war, then <laughs> I've got one for you. But uh, great, Bridgerton. You know, I've been meaning to. It's it's on my queue. and uh, It's pure I, I've fluff. I've been sort of saving it. And it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And That's gorgeous. And everybody's yeah. gorgeous. And the dresses are beautiful. I could use that. Yeah. All right. That's a fantastic recommendation, Bridgerton. And that's on Netflix, right? It is. Okay, Netflix. All right. Uh, okay. Manoj, what do you have for us? Before we forget... Please do tell people where they can subscribe to Ion China also. Right. So the, there are two newsletters uh, that I'm currently running. One is Ion China. You can find that on Substack on the Takshashila website. Uh, and there's also uh, a daily newsletter on the People's Daily, uh, which I've uh, strangely grown to really, really enjoy um, reading it. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, but- we love that one too. We, we, we read both of yours. Yeah, that's also on the Takshashila website, and it's all uh, on Substack. Uh, my recommendations: I had uh, I had two recommendations. Uh, I didn't have one. Uh, I w- I wanted to recommend uh, a book uh, uh, which co- sort of talks about all the things that we've spoken about today. It's India and Asian Geopolitics: The Past, Present by former Indian National Security Advisor Shiv Shankar Menon. I think it's a wonderful read on everything that we've spoken about today. And I wanted to recommend something uh, which sort of talks about uh, my past life. Um, You know, many, many years ago, as a young man, I wanted to become a Bollywood superstar. Unfortunately, that did not work (laughs) out. So uh, I thought I'd recommend the movie that shaped my Bollywood dreams. It's a 1995 movie called Dilwale Dulhaniya Le Jayenge. Oh my God, yes, Um, absolutely. I second that recommendation. Okay. So I recommend everybody watch that. It'll, uh, it's a nice, it's a wonderful movie with lots of song and dance and happy endings, which is the kind of stuff that we need today in life. Absolutely. I think we're all kind of going with escapism as a theme here. This is great. Oh, and um, uh, Kaiser, you asked me where people could uh, read the Women You Should Know in India project, and I forgot to mention that. It is yeah. on CFR's Asia Unbound blog. If you just subscribe to it, you will get all of Asia Unbound's updates, including the bi-monthly interviews. Fantastic. Great, great, great. 
Um, I, I, like I said, if you want to alleviate your Velschmerz for 90 minutes or so and you have a, a Netflix subscription, I'm going to recommend a, a movie called Metal Lords. It's a high school comedy written by D.B. Weiss, and uh, I believe it was produced by, among others, David Benioff, the two guys who did Game of Thrones. It's just a rockin' feel-good movie that's, you know, a slightly tongue-in-cheek homage to this genre, you know, heavy metal, that usually takes itself way too seriously. I know I'm, I'm a metalist myself, but I love that genre. I love uh, this movie because it's, it's about friendship and not fitting in, about, you know, peer pressure and, of course, you know, the, the agonies of high school, romance and all that stuff. Um, and there's some f- awesome cameos in it from, from members of, you know, Judas Priest and Anthrax and Rage Against the Machine and Metallica. So uh, it's, it's a whole lot of fun. Um, yeah, check it out. It's it's fun, Metal Lords. And one more quick recommendation. I just just read it uh, before we, we jumped on this morning. A short essay by Matt Sheehan in Foreign Affairs. It's called The Chinese Way of Innovation, What Washington Can Learn from Beijing About Investing in Tech. Uh, Matt, as usual, gets it just right. It's very, very smart. Uh, please give that a read. Thank you so much. What a pleasure it was to have you both on. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was really fun. Yeah, I look forward to seeing you guys again, and let's keep in touch. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks once more to Jude Blanchett for making this introduction. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.